Hello, and welcome to Productive Ministry. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash productive ministry. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. This week, we're recommending The Practice of the Presence of God by Brother Lawrence. You can find an excellent, unabridged version narrated by Scott Brick on Audible. The practice of the presence of God is short but deep. Spend just over an hour with the well-regarded 17th century Carmelite monk and begin your journey to developing an awareness of the presence of God in your life. You can listen for free to The Practice of the Presence of God by Brother Lawrence, narrated by Scott Brick, by going to www.audibletrial.com slash productive ministry. Get a 30-day free trial, including a free audiobook, when you sign up today. This is episode number 25, Addiction, with Scott Stoner. Welcome to Productive Ministry. Our guest today is Scott Stoner of Imagine Programs, and you are also a juvenile drug court counselor. Well, welcome to the show. I'm glad you're on today. Uh, Thanks for having me, Rocky. I appreciate it. Yeah. So what does a juvenile drug court counselor do? To put it in a nutshell, I work with kids that should be in a detention center, I guess. Uh, I work with what society or what we label, I guess, the bad kids, Um, the ones that we put in jail under the age of 18. Um, yeah, those are the kids I work with because the juvenile drug court program takes those kids, puts them back into society, and says this is a better place than jail for them or detention yeah. center. Now, do all the kids you work with are they all on drugs? Uh, spe- yes, yes. Specifically work with drug yeah, cases. it's specifically drugs. Um, and then I mean, a lot of times it's dual diagnosis, mental health issues. Uh, we're currently trying to start a girls court, which deals with more dual diagnosis specifically instead of just drugs. Um, but that's coming up, and so like right now we're just working. It has to have a drug related. Uh, issue with it. Now, everything all over the news right now is opioids and how the opioid crisis in the United States is out of control. Is that an issue in your like world or your spectrum? Um, it is in the drug world. As far as specifically in the juvenile drug court world, we haven't seen as much opiate use as as it is pre- prevalent in like the adult treatment. Um, we've seen a lot of marijuana and then pr- pharmaceutical use. So Xanax, um, that is yeah. one of the big things. Benzodiazepines, depressants, stuff that makes the kids numb um, is kind of one of the big things right now. And I think luckily for our kids, a lot of those laws that went in about the opiates being uh, harder to get and less prescribed within the past year have helped curb some of that. Um, but you know, with the deep web and stuff, it's only a matter of time before right. one person. And, and what I found in the in the area that I work in in Collin County is it takes kind of one, one person, one kid starts getting introduced to it. And then all of a sudden it's all throughout it. And, yeah. and recently it's been that with like LSD is something that we've seen a lot of, which really? I hadn't seen LSD. since the nineties. Right. And yeah. so it's kind of like, man, one kid had it. And then all of a sudden we're getting a bunch of positive, you know, areas and reports. And so it's That's been insane. kind of a interesting thing. What propels you to, to do your work? You know, I get asked that a lot because I work with kids that don't want help and it can get discouraging. You know, you walk into and by the time that they're getting to me, it's not that I'm a feel good counselor. I'm kind of like the last ditch hope for a lot of the kids. I mean, they're in detention centers. There's not much of a chance to get out. And our program is hopefully a a diversion program that says, "Okay, here's your opportunity. And 
to go into that type of setting with a kid that has all that against him and him to just still say, no, I'm fine. It, it can get discouraging and get hard. But then every once in a while, a year later, you see that kid that's been with you for that full year that can say like, man, about six months, I saw you still doing this every day. Like, why yeah. were you doing that? And, and eventually they get to see Christ within those, that year process. It's a process. Um, but eventually, hopefully they see that, okay, he's not discouraged. There is a point to this program. There is a point to all this. Let me figure that out. Um, and I've seen that with a few of my kids. I've been doing this for about four years now and I've been with the drug court for about a year. Um, and with both programs, I've definitely seen that, you know, it, it doesn't happen with all of them. It's, it's definitely a low percentage, but with the few that it does, I mean, it's amazing. And yeah. so it's worth it for that. Now, I know that you work specifically, you do a lot of drug intervention things and you're like, you're at LLC. Is that right? LCDC. LCDC. What's the, what is that? Licensed mean? chemically dependent counselor. So that's uh, drugs. Yeah. I work with chemical dependency is what they used to, it's an older term for drug yeah. abuse, drug addiction. Are, are addictions different? Like if someone is addicted to pornography or addicted to opioids or whatever. So I think there there's there is a little bit difference in addictions is in the fact that there's some addictions that have physical aspect to it. So if you talk about opioids, I mean, when you quit opioids, you feel sick. I mean, you have the flu. It's one of the worst feelings. I was a heroin addict and that's an opiate. And it is literally like one of the worst feelings. So not only are you dealing with this psychological part of it, but you're also dealing with this physical part. And so I think every addiction has a psychological part when you quit it. Mm -hmm. Um, You obviously developed that addiction for some reason or for some issue that you had. And so when you quit it, you're still going to have that issue or reason unless it resolved itself in some form or fashion, which usually doesn't happen. Um, And so I think each addiction kind of has that psychological aspect. And I think that can differ from each person depending on the reason on why they developed it or the reason why they're using it as their coping skill or why they're using it as their mechanism. So I work at the church and we, you know, one one of the things that we're always talking about is accountability. Like we try and uh, kind of set that system up, but if I'm being 100% completely honest, I've, I've seen maybe one or two cases over 20 years of ministry where accountability has been an effective deterrent uh, for addictive behavior uh, and I just was wondering if you could speak. Into, are we wrong for doing that? Um, no, I don't know if it's wrong or maybe just not the right setting. You know, I think sometimes that church has its part in therapy and its part in addiction. Then I think sometimes there's places like my facility that have its part with drug testing and with monitoring levels and actually keeping that accountability. You know, I don't I don't know if everyone's equipped to go give drug tests and to monitor and to actually make sure because. When you're working with an addict, and I, and I know when I was an addict, I was a Christian, but man, I, I was lying every single day. And there was no way someone at the church you was going to catch me. You get really good at lying. Right. You get yeah. really good at lying, really good at deceit, really good at manipulation. I mean, I, I was drug tested by my family and I would just lie on it. I would fake them. I, I would I would deny. I mean, there was, there was no catching me. They weren't going to hold me accountable. Um, it really was until I, a, I wanted my own accountability and then B, I found, uh, you know, a treatment center and then a halfway house that held me accountable to where I, you know, I couldn't get away with stuff. Like constant monitoring, like. Yeah. Constant monitoring. And then people who've done it. I mean, if you're an addict, then you kind of know what to look for. You know, some of the warning signs. I mean, if you fake tests, then you know what to look for when people are faking tests and and it's kind of just learned experience to an extent. Yeah. (laughs) That's funny. So. Um, I was just thinking like, oh, well, we should all go through that. No, that's terrible. <laughs> no, no I mean, that's and, terrible. And, and, I, and that doesn't mean that you have to do that. And and like I said, you know, law enforcement and stuff, they do training to where you, you can kind of see some of the warning signs of what to look out for. Maybe that is part of the answer is going through a training on how to help hold people accountable. Maybe looking at different types of therapy and different types of programs that can help 
pastors or people in the church say like, okay, look for these warning signs, look for this in your no. members. Uh, well, I mean, there's only one addiction that we ever talk about in the church. Let's be honest. And that's <laughs> sex addiction or porn pornography. Like that's the one, like we're not sitting there confronting our, you know, uh, our churchgoers about, oh, well, you're a drug addict. You know, we're never preaching about the dangers of drug addiction from the pulpit or we're never really preaching about the dangers of alcoholism from the pulpit or, or, you know, stop smoking cigarettes and using tobacco because they'll kill you. We'll be like, stop looking at porn all the time. You know, it's ruining your marriage. So, right. yeah. and, and, you know, honestly, I think, you know, I grew up in the church. Um, every Sunday I was there and I went to a Baptist university for college. And when I was addicted physically to heroin, I didn't know there was treatment available. Yeah. And I grew up like, you know, a pretty decent life. Like I wasn't chill. Like I wasn't put off into a corner and said, you can't do this. I mean, I was exposed to a lot of stuff and, and that was never presented to me. And that, you know, that's a concern, I guess. And that is why I like going into churches and talking about addiction because it, it raises that awareness to where people are like, yeah, you can get help if you are physically addicted and it's not something to be ashamed about. And I think that is one of the biggest things that was I got. your Was your church, were they like confronting you? Um, no one really knew, I don't think. Yeah. Um, somebody had to know. Come on, man. Somebody had to know. I, well, when, am I, I didn't really use a lot when I was going to church. I used a lot in college yeah. um, and I hit it pretty well, withdrew a lot. I was only involved with a few people at the time. Um, they might have known, but I, I just don't. Also, also, I don't know if there's much they could have done. Yeah, and I don't know if anyone at the church. You know, I guess I'd have to ask them. I'm, you know, I've never really talked to him about it. I know when I got clean and came back, it was a very welcoming experience, and everyone was helped hold me accountable. Then I really haven't, you know, when I went to treatment and got clean, there was really no issues past that for me. I was, yeah. I was ready. I got clean on my own. I didn't have kind of like a catalyst that yeah. said I got caught or this happened. It was kind of like a revelation, like I'm really messed up and I need help. Um, and so that's that's what you know started me getting clean. So, you know, I think I think that we categorize things a lot. We categorize different addictions and and different things like that. And and when we see someone in the church who is struggling with with alcoholism or or there's always that uncomfortable conversation. And it's not an intervention, but like just really a, a conversation to say, hey, I've been noticing these behaviors in your life. What's going on? <clears throat> is there a way to do that that's. Yeah, I think, you know, um, there's two types of church people that I've kind of learned to understand whenever I've gone to, gone to the church and grown up in the church. And there's the church people that ask you how your Sunday is going. And then there's the church people ask you how your Monday is going. Yeah. Um, oh, the, well said. Yeah. <laughs> the people that actually know you and then the people that actually act like they know you. And I think if you're one of the person that asks how Monday is going, then you have the right to go talk to that person about their alcoholism or their drug addiction. Mm-hmm. And I think they'd be a lot more receptive to it. And I think it takes that relationship to do that. And so I think that's really the first step is establishing that relationship. And so I think if someone has that close of an interpersonal relationship where they see that there's a problem, it's just like if they saw there is a problem with deceit or lying or if they're having money issues, you approach your brother kind of in the same issues. And the fact that, hey, I'm, I'm seeing this, what can we do to help? Um, and then after that, being able to follow it up with resources and not just saying, oh, OK, I'll, I'll pray for you and being overwhelmed. It's like, you know, researching, well, what help is there for this type of addiction? Are they going to need to go to detox? Are they going to need to go to rehab for an extended period of time? You know, what is it that they're going to need um, to help their issue? Because ultimately they're they're going to need help if they're struggling with that heart of an addiction to where everyone's starting to notice. So let's say that a kid comes in to youth group. Right. And they sit the they're like, hey, pastor, talking to your youth pastor, I uh I really need to talk to you about some stuff. And they, they sit them down. They have a conversation and the kid's like, my parents are addicted to drugs. 
how do I help that kid? That can be a tough situation. There's, I guess, a few different approaches you could take. Personally, you could, uh, if you knew the parents, address it, talk to them, try to see if they want help, reach out to them, offer them help, say, hey, you can go to this treatment center, you could go to this counseling. And and here's the thing is there is treatment and counseling for people who don't even have insurance or don't even have income. I mean, there's places that are available. My facility works with Medicaid. I mean, and so people cannot pay and still come do outpatient counseling with us. And so there are options. And so don't let that hinder some people from going to offer that. Um, and it depends on kind of the age of the kid also. And then there's also the, the CPS case. I mean, you can also call CPS and get them involved if the kid's life's in danger. I mean, if it's hard drugs and that kid's being exposed to not only the substances, but that lifestyle of people. And so sometimes people in the church don't don't see it as that serious that that kid's life could be in jeopardy. Right. I mean, if his parents are using hard drugs, bringing in drug dealers into the house with guns and stuff like that, I mean, it can definitely jeopardize that kid's life. So you should ask them what kind of drugs are your parents using? Uh, you could get into that and ask them, you know, what are you seeing around the house? Do you ever feel unsafe around that area? Or do you ever feel like, hey, this might not be a bad, a good situation for me? Is there anything that you've seen that could uh, cause an issue that didn't seem normal to you? Or, or maybe just ask them exactly, hey, well, what goes on on a Friday night at your house? You know, are your parents up all night? Are they being loud? Is there a lot of arguments? And, and kind of assess you know, his safety issue, because ultimately that's the most important thing to me for these kids is making sure they're safe. I mean, if they go out and use drugs again, that's, it's not okay, but it's better than dying. It's better than passing away. Like that is like the ultimate loss, I guess, when I'm working with my kids. And so I always like graph everything off that, like that is it. That's what I'm not going to work towards. And so, you know, looking at the whole situation, I feel like they're not safe. Then that first call is going to be the police or CPS to try to get him, you know, taken out of that situation or, um, you know, just try to figure out more information, I guess would be the best thing to do. Yeah. And then, after that, like, what if, you know, what if they're not in a dangerous situation? What if they're middle-class kids whose parents are addicted to prescription pills? Ultimately, people are going to quit whenever there's problems. No one's going to quit because it's a perfect day outside. Right. So everyone's going to have to see that there's issues. And so if it doesn't take people bringing that up, then eventually it's going to be natural consequences. And I prefer mm -hmm. the personal method of it. I, I had a uh, mentor that used to tell me there's a lot of lessons better learned in a classroom than real life. Yeah. And I had to go learn a lot in real life. And my goal is to teach a lot of those kids in the classroom. And so if you can kind of, you know, and like I said, it depends on how good of the relationship is with the parents. If you can approach them and say, these are the issues and, and raise awareness. And sometimes that's enough of a catalyst to get someone worried about it, to say, okay, I need to get clean about this. I need to get redemption about that. Sometimes it's not. And, and a lot of times when people in an addiction are presented with two options, they, they either get really good or really bad. And so then it kind of curtails off quickly. And I guess if that's the case and if it's not so bad where you can't really report it and it's not as bad of issues, then you just got to keep a close eye on it. You know, maybe build a closer relationship with that family and, and show them you care more. Yeah. Uh, maybe you take that approach, you know, just keep loving them saying, hey, I know this issue is going on, but I'm going to be involved. And as soon as I see a problem, I'm going to be able to help on it or fix it. Or yeah, yeah, it's really difficult because like there is a socioeconomic difference between like when poor people are struggling with drug addiction and when wealthier people are struggling with drug addiction because... I feel like wealthier people are going to be able to get away with it for a longer time um, simply just because they can create like a sense of normalcy. You know, they can hide behind just like the facade of their life. Um, and that's always a really difficult thing. It's difficult to tell someone that they're in trouble when they have everything that they need, when they're not starving at night, when they're when their kids have clothes and things like that. But meanwhile, like their whole world is falling apart. Do you do you? Do you experience that at all? Do you yeah, find yeah, you do. And and a lot of times it takes people pointing out that their world's falling apart because a lot of stuff, whenever you're in your drug addiction or wherever, you know, and especially people who use stimulants, you create this 
false sense of reality for your world. And you kind of, I mean, a lot of people use drugs to block out feelings or block out emotions. And so if I'm, you know, currently using drugs, then I'm currently blocking out that my life sucks. Basically, I'm currently mm-hmm. blocking out that everything's terrible around me. And so sometimes it takes interventions and people, you know, reminding me like, Hey, this isn't, you know, there's a better way. There's a better option. There's better, there's better things to do. And eventually either, like I said earlier, they're either going to keep going well, or it's going to go the curtail to the, to the bottom and it's going to catch up to them. And, and like you said, though, with uh, the people that have money or the people that can do it, we definitely see that because it's a lot harder to prove someone's abusing hydrocodone versus heroin. I mean, right. I can tell you you're abusing heroin just by a positive test. Hydrocodone that you're taking 10 a day, if it's prescribed, I can't, yeah. my, my license doesn't trump a doctor's. And so technically it gets really hard, but that's where, you know, the DEA's laws and the FDA regulations on opioids have, has helped a little bit for sure. Yeah. Do you ever have kids where, they come into, you know, your program. By the time they get to you, they're already pretty deep into this process, right? Right. Like you're not dealing with kids who have smoked pot once or twice. No, I'm not. Uh, so the way they consider it, there's first time offenders and then there's high risk high needs. And high, I work with the high risk high needs kids. I don't really get the the first offender kids usually go through like an educational program where right. they sit with the PowerPoint saying this is what drugs do to your body. I get the kids that have gone through that, that have sat in detentions, that have gotten suspended, that are in alternative school, that have spent time in jumpsuits. Yeah, I usually get. When you see when you see those kids, do you ever? look at their record and say, oh, well, you know, there was an intervention here and there was an intervention here. And have you ever thought like, well, this is this is a great example of a kid who uh, the system has just failed or got the wrong kind of help from the wrong kind of person? Yeah, I would say that that happens a lot. And I don't know if it's a system failure, a family failure, societal failure. But yeah, I mean, that happens with most of the kids I work with. At some point in the time, they're there should have been an intervention and there wasn't or there was and it was a completely wrong type for mm-hmm. sure. Um, a lot of times, you know, you start getting in trouble and you start getting consequences for the wrong things as an adolescent or that's mm-hmm. what they associate it with. And right. so then they never really understand like why it is they're getting in trouble. And so then it's, it's like a cycle form. And I think that is why we see a lot of the kids coming back is they never fully understand that what behavior was it that got them into the spot they're in? And so they never fix it. And so it's just kind of this loop of, well, I got in trouble. I'll go sit on my time. I'll go serve probation, but I won't actually fix that deeply rooted behavior of I need more. or I'm not content with myself. There's a lot of different things, but they don't ever work on that. Um, and a lot of times we just do, okay, well stop stealing and that's it. And it's like, well, yeah. no, that's, there's much bigger issues. And so I think that is what we see a lot of. And then sometimes we have seen, you know, I have worked with kids that, Maybe early on in their substance use, they did go to like a, a wilderness place and it, it didn't scarred them a little bit. Or they did go to treatment centers that were a little rough or they did go to detention center whenever they needed to be going to a psych unit. I, I definitely have seen that with some kids. What does that look like? Because I know I know that's crazy, but a crazy question to ask. But here's my big fear. I work at a, a pretty like a large, medium sized church. Right. And. You know, we get all sorts of people in with all sorts of trouble all the time. And and my, my fear is, is that I'm going to be that bad program because I don't know what I'm doing. Right. You know, I, I'm scared that someone's going to come in and I'm going to have no idea what their need is or how to help them. I guess I, I just want to know, like, what is an example of this going bad? You see a lot of resentment 
and the people that it goes bad with. And I work a lot with that resentment towards the church because a lot of people, and I don't know if it's that people have gotten bad treatment at a church or just had a bad experience when they opened up. Kind of like you said, we don't talk about drug addiction. We talk about a porn addiction. So if someone opens up about a drug addiction, they're looked on a little differently. Right. And I see that expression a lot with people that I tried to open up or I tried to get honest with people in the church and I got looked differently upon. I got cast out and I see that I work a lot with people who are resentful that don't even want to give it another shot. And I guess that is one of the biggest damages I see is that it just completely turns away people from the church because ultimately when I'm doing therapy, there becomes times and questions where there's not an answer to, I mean, Mm. we all have problems that eventually we have to learn to cope with. I mean, we all have social anxiety to an extent. We all have depression that comes around. And so at some point you have to pray and you have to accept that these are struggles that I'm going to have And when it gets to that point and you talk about a higher power and those people are resentful so much towards the church, it's almost impossible to continue with it. And so that is the biggest damage that I think I've seen with people in the church. And what is the church? Just just spit it out, dude. Just tell us, what are we doing that's causing this resentment? Like, give me some examples of... Treating, I really want to know. Treating the homeless guy like he's different in the back of the church. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the clients I work with were homeless at a point and they walked into a church and they were treated differently. Yeah. Um, treating people that, I mean, just people can tell when you look at them differently. I mean, people will get that sense. And if, and I think also with the church, if you're, and it might not be an intentional, we're going to treat you differently. It's that we're not used to working with drug addicts. We're not used to working with these people. And so we just don't know what to do. And I think that might be more of it. And so it might be, hey, go volunteer at the Salvation Army where the drug addiction program is. I mean, they have one where they feed people through from jails and go go yeah. meet, intermingle with those people and learn um, what it is they like to do or what it is they like to work with. Maybe kind of yeah. put yourself in that situation if that's what you're called. I don't want to be I don't want to come off as aggressive here. There are a lot of people that uh, will come into the church, right? And they're looking for the church. They're wanting to resource the church, right? So they're wanting sometimes they need food or they need bills to pay or or anything like that um and i think that if we if we let ourselves our our assumption is like this person's in need um and we have them fill out an application and we're we're going to help them but a lot of times we don't ask them questions mm-hmm. right do you think we should be saying are you addicted to drugs uh so people Cause, perceive cause always, that differently. Yeah, because it's always like, oh, well, I was driving to Maine and my car broke and now I need gas money and we need money to stay at the hotel. And like the, the, there's like four or five stories that we hear all the time. Right, right. And and a lot of those stories are ones that I hear, too. Yeah. Um, and a lot of them do have drugs involved. And so I don't like I said earlier, sometimes I think it's being equipped for the right stuff to be able to do that. But I do think that is a service that churches should be able to offer, or at least have that resource available to say like, Hey, okay, you're getting aid from us is not content. Like, it doesn't matter about this drug use or whatever's going on. But if that's a problem, we have a free place or we have a place that's really low cost that will help you with it. And offering like that type, you know, not a and, 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 or, or, but, or not an and, but a or like a, Hey, you can also do this. And yeah. so it's not one or the other. It's kind of an option thing for me. And I think, when people in an addiction are presented with options, they, they don't feel as trapped and they don't feel as much of that flight movement, as much as yeah. that I need to get out of here. They're like, okay, well, at least this person's giving me something. Um, and then it kind of puts the ball in their court and it lets them decide. It lets them say, okay, yes or no, this is what I need. And and I think if you start seeing, you know, like I work a lot with people in the criminal world and a lot of people who've been in an addiction. And so you can't, in my world, I can't just keep giving and giving and giving. I have to have some boundaries and expectations for yeah. my kids. And so I kind of have a different mindset about it towards uh, if it's a continued use. You know, if it's the people that are coming back constantly, constantly, I would say like, okay, well, 
maybe we should have some mandatory counseling or we should see what's going on here. Um, that would yeah. kind of be this my. But you know, what's crazy about it is that like, from my perspective, again, um, just, you know, there are times where, where you like people come to your office, they need help. And it's obvious that, that they have like a, a drug addiction and they're not, they're not healthy. You know what I mean? Like emotionally, mentally, physically, they're just not healthy people. Right. Mm-hmm. And so there are times when I'm sitting and I'm talking and I, and I definitely want to help. Someone needs food. I want to feed them and, and all of those things. But then it's like you said, it's at some point you have to, when you're dealing with the same people over and over and over again, it's just like you have to, you have to cut that off. And I remember like there are times where, uh, one time in, in particular where I told a guy, I'm like, you know, you, you, you don't even change your story. And like, we've been helping you and, and all this other stuff. And I, 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 I think that there's more going on here. Um, and he cusses me out and then I'm like, well, now you can't be here. I'm just going to walk you to the door. So I walk over to the door and he spits in my face and, uh, just like rage going inside. And I'm just like, you need to walk away <laughs> to myself. And uh, just close the door and go back to my office, but uh, but those are those those are it's it's like the uh, the difficulty right of of saying oh I'm trying to be completely compassionate uh, and I and I want to help but I don't know the right questions and then I feel like if I ask this question then I'm a jerk and it, I feel sometimes like I feel like I can't win and so I don't know which is the best course. Yeah, so, no, I definitely uh, terrible anecdote, <laughs> but it happens. No, for sure. man, it definitely happens. And you know, in the counseling world, I've had patients do that type of behavior to me, and I tell them I can't wait to see you tomorrow. Like, hey, come see you in group tomorrow. And so I kind of do that approach. Uh, you know, working with oppositional defiance, motivational interviewing. It's meeting them where they're at, and if that's where they're at, and then that's how they're going to keep seeing Christ's love through me. Then I'm going to keep doing that. Yeah. Um, and it, it, like I said, I, I work with these kids like six months to a year, seeing them three times, two times a week. And so I, you know, I get a lot of hours with them and it takes time. And, and I look back to even my personal experience, whenever I was getting clean, um, I was in treatment and my counselor told me I needed to go to a halfway house for the first time, you know, weekend. And I, I told him to go F himself, you know, not abbreviated and walked out and, and he looked at me and he said, I'll consider that. I was just, I was, I, I had no idea how to respond. And I just walked out of his office, yeah. but he, he completely turned around everything I had done to him. Like, I mean, yeah. I, he didn't respond with anything I expected. He responded with, I'll consider that. And I think ever since then, that's where like my mindset was like, okay, he just completely blew my mind with that one little statement. How can I start doing that to show people Christ or show people love that? Okay. They're used to getting this response, but when they get this from a counselor or a Christian, they're going to be their, their minds are going to be blown by it. Well, for me, like the thing that I always have to remember is that they're hurting. Mm-hmm. And and I, and I there are times where, where you could lack compassion and you forget that because you just feel like, oh, well, they're just using the church. And for some reason, like Christians are so, so scared to be taken advantage of. <laughs> like that's the worst thing in the world that can possibly happen. <laughs> oh, well, they're just going to spend money on drugs and they're just going to, yeah, you know, if we help them or, or whatever, they don't really want to be helped. And I don't and, think it's a good idea to make it easy. Like, for instance, yeah. I don't think it's a good idea to give a drug addict a hundred dollar bill, but right. I don't think it's a terrible idea to give them groceries and to help them with daily necessities at all. Yeah. I mean, I think whenever you start denying that to people, it gets touchy and I don't, I don't think that's good. And so I think, you know, I do think there is a con, there is a type of uh, enabling drug mm-hmm. addicts and you don't want to do that. 
I just it just occurred to me like does the uh does the church have like an unhealthy codependent relationship <laughs> with drug addicts? No, I don't I doubt uh, it. I doubt it. Because that would mean the church would be giving away a lot of money. <laughs> we and we that. have. We have given away probably literally billions of dollars over a two thousand year history. Probably. <laughs> so probably. That's really funny. So I mean what? I think it, you know, and I do think that I mean, I don't know, I guess that goes to church to church. I've never heard of a church giving out cash to people that are doing yeah. that. No, but you know, there we like we. I know we're talking about this, but you know, like we pay bills, we, 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 uh, we'll give people food. Sometimes we do gas cards. Sometimes we do things like Walmart and, cards. And, and you know, sometimes I think that might be hard for a church to do that. But I think a lot of times I work with the younger people of those households, mm-hmm. and so like, yeah, I might agree that those parents, you know, are using that money for bad. But then I see that those kids wouldn't even have food if the church didn't give them that money. Absolutely. And so like I see, you know, Absolutely. and it's, it's one of those tough situations to where it's like, I don't, I don't think those kids don't deserve that. And I sometimes have to work with those kids later on in their life and it gets rough and you, yeah. you hear that and it, it's definitely not something that's fun to work with. No, I totally agree with you. Um, 150,000%. I agree with you. It's a tough sell for whatever reason. Um, because like I said, you have pastors who have been working in the church for years and years and years. And you just develop very strong opinions. Right. Like, I mean, like I mean, you, the, like you burn out. And I just, I, I really, I know I'm like pushing you and poking you about this, but I'm really desiring that you confront this attitude. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, cause, cause it doesn't help. At the end of the day, it doesn't help. It doesn't help the church and it doesn't help the people who need help. Right. How does Christ play in all of this? You know, whenever I always reference when, you know, there's Paul's thorn in his hip, whatever that problem was. I know when I was in treatment, a lot of the counselors and a lot of people referenced that as him having an alcohol problem, possibly. And God said, my faith is enough. And so I always look at different things that Jesus was involved with, the sailors that he hung out with, the people that he associated, the prostitutes. I mean, those people weren't drinking tea on Saturday nights. They were they were probably using whatever they could at the time. Um, and so I think when Jesus was here, he was around a lot of those people and he loved on those people. I mean, he went and spent time and cared and showed those people love, which was different at the time because they got cast out. They got treated differently. And I think that that is ultimately what it is, is just showing those people that, hey, we don't believe you're different. We don't believe that that drug addiction defines you, that you're a human just like us. And I think it takes, you know, dedicating your time to it. And and here's the thing is you're asking people to dedicate time to people that are going to be you're telling them they're going to lie to you. They're going to deceive you and they're going to they're going to try to take advantage of you. But go love them. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know of a harder population to want to go love. I guess maybe it's teenagers. But other than that, what what's a harder population to go show love to besides someone who's not wanting it? Someone who's going to be resentful about it. Someone who's probably going to try to take advantage of you at the end of it. And so I think that's ultimately why people get burnt out and why, you know, I mean. But I think that that's the key. You have to go into it knowing that they're going to lie to you, that they're going to take advantage of you. But but being so committed to to what God has called you to do uh, for them that that you're ready and willing to accept that. You know what we do? We sit around and then we act like surprised. We're surprised that drug addicts are lying to us. And then we, we just feel so disenfranchised about it. You know, we're surprised when, uh, when hurting people hurt us or when angry people are mad at us or for whatever reason, that's just the sh- most shocking thing that ever happens in the church. What would happen if we just started with that expect? I know it's a terrible expectation to have, but to, but to say, there's a good chance that, that, that these people, because they're hurting, because they're, they're struggling with addiction, because they're caught in sin, because, because they're still in the middle of it, that 
that this is this is a possibility and that's why they need help. Yeah. And I mean, if you change your expectations, then you're going to be disappointed a lot less. I mean, I tell parents that a lot that, you know, well, I expect my kid to do this. I expect him to do this. And and I had to really change my expectations as a therapist when I got in the field working with the population I do, because I expected all of them to do like I did. I went to treatment once I got it and I never looked back. I mean, I was like, I'm done with that life. And and that's not the way the world works. I mean, we that's not the way sin works a lot of times. And so to expect that out of a drug addict or to expect that out of anyone dealing with an addiction would be like super unrealistic. But yet we do. And I think people expect it because it seems like so off the wall at some points. Like it just seems like so crazy that someone would risk their kids, their family, their job for this stupid little drug. But to that drug addict, that's the one thing that's gotten them through all this pressure, this stress, this issues of life. And so for you to say that you're taking that away, it's like a life or death thing for a lot of people and addicts and addictions mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And so I think that plays a bigger role. And I think people starting to understand addiction more then you won't be as disappointed by it. Um, you know, the closest relation that I've heard that makes sense is kind of comparing it to a type two diabetes. Mm-hmm. So yes, people can make it better by their diet and exercise, but it can also get worse by their diet and exercise. So looking at someone with an addiction, it can get better with counseling or it can get worse with lack of counseling. And if you continue to use, then eventually you're going to have to go to the hospital. You're going to have to go to residential care. You might eventually die. If you continue to eat sugary foods as a type two diabetic, you might have to get a leg amputated. You might have to have toes removed. Like it's kind of in your control to an extent. And it's kind of not like there are biological and there are psychological factors. And so I think being able to understand both of those and work with the addicts in the church and being able to say like, Hey, I, I know where you're coming from and I'm going to continue to love you through it. I think is when those addicts start saying like, okay, later on, you know, and, and when you do a lot of seed planting in people in active addiction, it's not a lot of seed growing. It's a lot of, okay, let's plant this. And, you know, as this processes and as it, you know, matures, hopefully we'll see something because like I mentioned earlier, people aren't going to get clean or want to change unless there's an issue or a catalyst to it. And so I think, you know, if you plant all those seeds, if you allow them to say like, okay, there is help as soon as there's that catalyst and they can find a way out, they will. Yeah. Um, and I think that's where the churches is at needs to be at is that way out that, Hey, we're here if you need it. And we want to be a part of that recovery because I think that's where people want. And I mean, that's what I wanted. I wanted to find that way out as soon as I found out I was above my head. Um, and I was fortunate enough to where I could find out I was above my head by being physically addicted, but some people don't see that. And so sometimes it does take people saying like, Hey, I'm, I'm noticing this behavior. I'm noticing that it's the, how's your Monday going? Not your Sunday mm-hmm. type person. I mean, I think that's ultimately where the church should try to transition to, to helping people with their addictions or people with their, their struggles. And, and it can also look differently. I mean, if people in the church want to get involved, there's mentoring people, there's mentoring programs for people in addiction. I mean, there's, we look for mentors to go work for my, with my kids in the drug court program. And so, I mean, that's available to go show love to those kids now. And I mean, that's not something that's an hour away. That's 20 minutes away. What does a mentoring program look like? Um, It's, you know, you, I think they ask for an hour every other week and a phone call once a week. Mm -hmm. Um, Pretty basic, or maybe it's an hour a month and then a phone call a week. And it's taking the kids, you know, if it's a girl getting her nails done, taking her out to brunch, taking her out to get a coffee, just kind of starting to build that Monday relationship, but not even necessarily presenting Christ just as, hey, I'm here as an adult, because a lot of times these kids haven't even had that. I mean, to have that positive figure that has, you know, experienced some things in life and can just share, you know, love with them and share insight with them can definitely be beneficial. Do those programs are available all over the place? Yeah, there's uh, we work closely with one called Oasis Mentoring in Collin County. And then also, I mean, if people want to mentor, they can just contact me directly and I can get them set up with someone or a kid or I can get them matched up for sure. And then there's a, a Nineveh Ministries, which is just starting hopefully up here soon. 
And so there's a few different options. Nineveh Ministries. Mm -hmm. And uh, okay, so we'll, we'll include information to that to imagineprograms.net and make sure to include your contact yeah, information sure. in the show notes for sure. That's all really good stuff. I, can we go back for a second? Because you said if we change our expectations, that that's really good. And I'm kind of enthralled by that whole thing. I think there's some real wisdom in it. Now I'm going to push it to an extreme so that you can snap me back and, and give me some some proportion there. How do I treat an addict that goes to my church? They go to my church. I know they're going to lie to me. Do you confront those or do you wait for it to blow up? Do you say, hey, you told me this, but that doesn't make sense because this happened? Or There's two thought processes to that. There's the AA approach, which says everyone's going to eventually hit their rock bottom. And then there's the motivational intervening approach that says we need to meet that patient where they're at because they need help now. Um, I, I take the second approach. I try to help everybody where they're at. I mean, yeah. that's why I work with kids who are officers of the client that don't necessarily want help because I tell them I don't want you to hit your rock bottom. Like, I mean, this is what can happen. And a lot of times it takes knowing issues they're currently having. So whatever problems you've currently seen, if you can just talk to them about those problems, a lot of times you'll point out something else. So it's not even addressing like, hey, I think you're using drugs. It's like, hey, you've lost like 100 pounds in the past month. Like, that's odd. Yeah. What's up? You have all these sores on your arm. Like, do you need to go to the doctor? Is there anything I could help you with? You know, sometimes approaching those, it lets the addict or the person know like, hey, they're starting to notice stuff. I either need to clean up my act or this is going to get worse. Within the church, we have a thing called church discipline and it's based on Matthew 18 and it's real common in a lot of churches. So we don't ever church discipline non-Christians, mm -hmm. right? Like church discipline exists for those with inside the church, but it's just a way that we, that we interact with people. So basically what would happen is... Let's say that a wife, members of our congregation, uh, they go to our church and she says, you know, my husband, my husband is addicted to drugs. You know, he's really abusive towards us, whatever. I've talked to him about it, blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera. Then we would go and confront him about it. And then if that still doesn't work, like he still doesn't, he's persists in that lifestyle. He's not getting help. He's not doing anything then I would go to the elders and then the elders would confront him about it. And they would say, hey, this is how we're going to try and help you. These are resources we're making available to you. You have to stop this behavior. You're a Christian. This is what God is expecting of you. And then if that still doesn't work, then it's disassociation. You can't persist in this lifestyle and still be a member of our congregation. That's not going to change. Right. What are your thoughts about that? Um... You know, I think you said one term in there that would definitely raise a red flag whenever you put the term abuse. That's whenever my sirens go off and says that there needs to be like law enforcement or that woman needs to be removed. Right. Because, right. you know, like I said earlier, dying or getting physical harm is definitely the worst thing. And so I think first I would approach that with saying like, OK, well, if he lays a hand on you or anything, call the police. I mean, that needs to be absolutely first and 100%. foremost type mentality. And then if that if the abuse stops, but the substance use doesn't stop then I think you start addressing that. I mean, that's almost like a separate entity type thing. So then it's like, okay, well, let's see if he's willing to go to yeah. treatment. Is there willingness of any treatment? No. And then the, the disassociation from the church part. So, and like as evangelicals, we don't, we don't excommunicate. Right. Like, we don't tell people they can't go to heaven or hell right. or that they're not saved anymore or like that. But we say, we do, right. We say your sinful behavior is affecting our community and it's affecting everything like that. And you know, if you want to continue to be part of our community, you can't persist in this. Right. The The point of church discipline is to to bring those who are that far down the road back to a place of, of, 
of uh, repentance and, right. and healing and, and growth because that's what we, we desire that all men are saved, right. essentially. And I think it goes back to me mentioning earlier that if you give them two options, saying, okay, hey, yeah, we understand that's the problem and this is what we're going to have to do as a church, but we have this treatment for you. And if right. you complete that and if, hey, that's all, that, that will help you if you try it. And I think if, like I said earlier, I think if people, especially if Christians who have a Christian background know there's a way out, a lot of times they'll take it. I think yeah. that if that seed's planted in Christ and you know that there's a better way to live because ultimately that's why every addict chooses to stay clean is you realize life's better clean, right? Yeah. I mean, like deep down you realize that God is more prevalent in my life when I'm sober and clear minded than when he wasn't. And mm-hmm. so as a Christian, you got to get them to realize that again. And so sometimes that's just saying, okay, well, what is it that's bad? Change that and then start seeing some positive behavior and hopefully Christ will start speaking to you again. And he will. I mean, he always does. I mean, it's something it's, yeah, that it's, Man, it's just, it's such tough stuff. I just, I just have to say, like, it, it requires so much wisdom and so much persistence because freeing somebody from addiction, especially like chemical addiction, where there's physical things that are happening to them, it's intense and it's real and it's not, it's not an easy process. And, um, it's not a thing that can, that you can just be okay. And sometimes I think in the church, like, we're just like, oh, well, you know, this person has been drinking a 12 pack of beer every day for the last 20 years. Why can't they just stop? And I'm just like, they might die yeah, if I they mean, just yeah, stop. They'll have a seizure if yeah. they just stop. I'm not even equipped to work with people like that. I mean, that's yeah. where detox centers are at. And, the, and I mean, and that's where I think sometimes the church might do better in referring out or having someone available yeah. that can do a quick assessment and say like, okay, this person's physically not a harm. And so like maybe they can do some outside church counseling or something like that. But if it's physically harm and especially with the prescription medications, mixing them. And so mm-hmm. if they have a prescription for Xanax, but they also drink six beers a night, you might as well triple that beer intake. That's like 18 or 20. I mean, wow. it, it, it compounds it because they're both depressants. And so they both interact in the same brain chemistry. And so it's if you don't know those type of things, you might just think, oh, just quit the beer and you'll not. But then you have a seizure on your hands or then you have you know a medical emergency. And, and then sometimes when cravings come along like those, you, it's hard to talk about it. You know, I can't necessarily talk about wanting to shoot up with another Christian all the time. And so early in recovery, sometimes you have to talk about that type of stuff and you have those types of cravings. And so getting them plugged in with someone who they can express that to or someone that they can say like, hey, I saw an orange cap and that really made me want to use someone who's not a Christian doesn't know what that orange cap means. Right. Um, Or someone who hasn't used doesn't know what an orange cap is. And so it's sometimes that type of relationship is what they need or what, you know, they need someone to reach out to. So uh, I just have a couple of more very yeah, I questions. Have no problem answering them. Okay. Um, I'm a pastor. I have theology degrees, ordination, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Am I qualified to help people uh, with drug addiction? Yeah. I think everyone is. Yeah. I think, I think, uh, like I said, I think if there's that physical aspect, I think then that they need more help. But I think, I think a, a drug addiction doesn't just take a counselor. I mean, in my approach, in our drug court program is not just me. It's we get mentors, we get probation officers, we get family, we get friends. I get my dad to help me take kids fishing. I mean, we get other people who aren't qualified to help these people. Now, does that mean they're the ones deciding? NAA and AA. Right. I mean, it's a whole bunch of unqualified, quote unquote, people helping others. I think it's it's just more of being aware and knowing kind of what it is you're getting into is the most important thing. Like you said, making sure your expectations are right, making sure that you are equipped and that you're ready because it is taxing and it can be hard. So just let's do some caveats here. I'm, I'm not a doctor, so I'm not qualified for detox. Mm -hmm. So if someone, someone is like, Hey, I want to, I want to stop using drugs and, and they're, and I'm, they come to my office and I'm like, uh, 
that's great. I want to help you through that. We can provide a, a, a support community for you, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I'm going to need you to go talk to a doctor. Right. That definitely needs to be part of the conversation. Yeah, yeah. No, if someone needs detox, then definitely have that resource available and say like, But hey, I, I'm not qualified to say whether or not someone needs detox. Right, right. Yeah. Um, and there, it's hard to say, I guess, you know, there, like I said, there's the physical aspect of substance use and they would really would need to probably talk to a therapist or talk to a doctor of some extent to see if detox is required. So, I mean, if there is someone that's asking for help in the church about drug addiction and is telling you that they're on drugs. And I think that's probably, they'll probably be willing to talk to a counselor. If you have one at that point, that's probably something you don't have to guess about. You yeah. might say, Oh yeah, well we have this guy that he'll talk to you on the phone for 20 minutes and we can figure out something. Yeah. Um, and I don't see why that would be like a huge issue to do. I mean, it's pretty easy to talk to someone and figure out what level of care or, you know, about where they need to go. So you can at least point them in the right direction. It's not sure. possible to do. So uh, another thing that happens uh, in the church is that there are a lot of ministry leaders and that's particularly our, our audience. We, we cater specifically towards pastors and church leaders. Um, there are a lot of pastors who are alcoholics uh, and there are a lot of pastors who are addicted to over the counter prescription drugs uh, who are addicted to pornography, who are addicted to all of those things. And can you, um, the thing is, is that we were constantly, you can lie to yourself. That's the best thing. Addicts are good liars, right. the, but the person they lie best to is themselves. Right. Do you know what I mean? Can you, for our audience, for someone who's out there, who's like, I'm not an alcoholic or a drug addict. Can you tell me some of the, uh, things that you look for to say, yes, you are, one thing I tell all my patients when I make a recommendation is I, I stand behind my recommendations 100%. So I like to be able to tell them why I'm making a recommendation or why I feel like they need treatment. Um, now, telling someone they're an addict or not, I don't ever do that because yeah. I think if I label my kids that, then they automatically get this wall up. And so I just say, hey, uh, let's look at what problems drugs have caused for you. Is there any issues? And so the biggest thing you look for is continue, continued use despite negative consequences. So someone who continues to use despite bad stuff happening. So a pastor who has seen his congregation drop by half, but doesn't know why, but he's drinking a 12 pack every night. I mean, that's a negative consequence, but you're not seeing it. So you continue yeah. to use. And so I think, you know, or someone who gets a DUI and continues to drink or someone who has marital problems and continues to drink someone who's starting to see problems come up, but continues to use that negative coping skills, such as right. pornography, such as addiction. I think that is one of the biggest signs. And then, I mean, you can look at it from the physical aspect. If you start feeling anxiety or getting shaking when you quit drinking, drinking is a pretty easy one because it's physical symptoms. Alcohol and benzodiazepines have physical symptoms that you can actually die from. And they're the only two substances that you can. Mm. Uh, opiates, meth, and all that. They can have some physical stuff, but they're, you can't pass away from them. Um, so you can have seizures from that. And so it can be alarming too. And so some people don't know that and they quit and then they have a seizure. Um, and so that's something to look out for. If they see that their use has gone up, you know, I used to just be able to drink two beers and be fine. And now I'm drinking six and I don't feel anything. That's yeah. definitely another warning sign that we look at. One of the things I always look for is, uh, especially among pastors, when you're choosing to do something rather than like being in community. Right. Like if you're like, I'd rather just stay home and drink all the time rather than go to my small group. Right. Or, so you know. withdrawing. So being absent from yeah. your normal life, because, you know, it's a shame thing. I don't want to be wasted in front of other people because they'll either know or I'll get caught or, yeah. you know, there's a bunch of reasons that go behind that. And I think, too, for pastors, I mean, I don't I don't know how many pastors have a counselor, but I have a counselor and he's he's uh, he's signed by law to where he can't tell anyone my crap. And so or my stuff. So mm -hmm. I, I tell him everything. And he I mean, he keeps it confidential. And so I definitely recommend if you think you have a problem or if you think there's an issue, go talk to a counselor, or a therapist about it and just bounce some ideas off. And even if it's not an issue as bad to where you need to go get treatment or you need to go to detox and stuff like that. But 
if maybe you do need to take a break, if maybe you do need to look at how that substance has caused an issue or how maybe you could perform better if you weren't using that substance for Christ or how Christ could utilize you more. Like you said, if you're having to withdraw from stuff, then Christ definitely could use that elsewhere if you're using a substance for that. Thank you for your time. It's been an amazing conversation. We will put uh, stuff about the Imagine program. Do you have like a, a, a blog or something where we can no. keep up with the stuff that you're doing? No, I mean, or? Facebook's probably the best thing for me. I post a lot on that. Okay. Um, no, no blog yet. But so probably. is it okay if we put a, uh, your yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, add me on that. Um, and you can always send me a message. I'm more than happy to talk with especially church people or anyone. I mean, like I said, my passion is going to churches and educating people about addiction and saying like, hey, normalize it kind of. It's a normal thing. People yeah. use drugs. I mean, I... My dad's dad was a preacher. My mom's dad was a Catholic deacon. So both grandparents were in the ministry, and yet I still used heroin, and I was in the church. I mean, it, it happens. It's part of it. It's it's here, and to not acknowledge it, to not accept it would kind of do it not justice, I think, yeah. and just make the problem worse. Awesome. Thank you, Scott. No, thank you. And that's going to do it for us today. Today's episode was produced by Tim Jenkins. That's me. Special thanks to Scott Stoner for being our guest today. Also, thank you to Audible for sponsoring the show. Get a 30-day free trial and a free audiobook when you sign up at www.audibletrial.com slash Productive Ministry. The Productive Ministry podcast can be found on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and wherever podcasts are served. You can also find us on the web at ProductiveMinistry.org, which is also home of our extended show notes. Wherever you listen, we ask you please rate and subscribe. This really does help us out. We hope that you'll share this episode, and we'd love to talk to you about it. You can find us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash ProductiveMinistry.org. You can follow us on Twitter at ProdMinistry. That's P-R-O-D Ministry. Tweet about the show using the hashtag ProductiveMinistry, and we'll thank you on next week's show. This has been a production of Rumble Media, LLC. And as we say every time, we hope you have a productive week.